Welcome to episode 371 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and not for long. First, I should say that the views expressed here don't reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our families, our friends, our pets. But uh, we are about to take the Cyber Law August hiatus, which usually runs through the month of August. We're going to have one more episode, but it won't be the standard episode. Instead, it'll be devoted to our cryptocurrency experts talking about a variety of crypto topics from a slightly different point of view than Nick brings to Okay. Crypto. Uh, it means cryptosporidia. I am disappointed that crypto has become cryptocurrency when it really ought to stand for cryptography. Okay. And I'm also going to be interviewing Josh Steinman, who was like the last man standing doing cyber in the Trump administration. He served in the National Security Council from the beginning to the end doing cybersecurity issues. Uh, so we'll ask him, see if we can get him to be at least a little bit uh, indiscreet. But before we do that, we're going to get the news roundup. Nick Weaver, who teaches uh, in the computer science department uh, at Berkeley. Pete Jadel, who uh, is a step-toe of counsel in our international regulation and compliance practice. Maury Shank, a London-based lawyer and technologist. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. we got a lot to cover, so I want to jump right in. Nick, uh, it was a big week in ransomware and uh, in the White House's response to uh, ransomware. Uh, first, Revil shuts down. Do we have any idea why that uh, was? I, I think everybody has their own pet theory. Mine is they felt the heat and pretended to disappear, they're just going to rebrand. That would be my pet theory, too. The things we really don't know. They could have been taken down by an outside actor. They could have been taken down by Russia. They could have taken themselves down because they want to retire to some nice new vineyards in Crimea. We don't. Meanwhile, the White House put out or announced that it was basically pushing every button on the dashboard for ransomware. Now, they didn't exactly go looking for really aggressive and creative new buttons, but they're doing a lot of stuff designed to try to get at uh, ransomware gangs, including offering $10 million rewards for people who are able to give them information leading to arrests. Yeah, the problem is that leading to arrest part, because these days the Russians have learned you don't take vacation south of Sochi. Yeah, uh, that's right. Or really west of Belarus. So even if we push every button, there is some question, uh, to my mind, how much we're going to accomplish. The Cyber Command famously took down TrickBot just before the election and worked with Microsoft and others to do that. Uh, and uh, it went down. 94%, but nine, it's like, say, we got we went in and operated and we got 94% of your cancer. That's not good enough when they've, uh, they've got an infrastructure that they can rebuild, and it looks as though they're rebuilding it. And it's just, in general, what that is effectively the ransomware targeting bad guys. And one of the things is, with ransomware, is it doesn't take you offline permanently. It's just transitory disruption. So we're doing transitory disruptions on them and they're just going, okay, let's uh, recover. And that's a problem. It 
really acts as something of a limit on what can be done in in future analysis. It pretty much defines whack-a-mole. They go down for a while. You can hit them. Maybe it even feels good, but they'll they be They get knocked down. They get up again. You're never going to keep them down. They get knocked down. They get up again. We're never going to keep them down. Okay. Well, that could be the theme song of the next executive order on ransomware. So uh, the, uh, the government also, I thought, started pushing a lot of buttons with respect to Chinese hacking. We've been a little critical of them for throwing the kitchen sink at Russia and yelling at the Russians and saying, we're going to have to do something about you, Russia, if you're unable or unwilling to stop uh, these ransomware attacks. And meanwhile, the extraordinarily irresponsible uh, attack on Microsoft Exchange uh, servers wasn't disruptive, but it was kind of basically kicking over the chessboard on the way out. They made everybody who had the vulnerability susceptible to attack by others. The I, I, the government sort of sat there and didn't seem to do anything for months and months. It's now been six months. And now, boy, they have unlimbered again a pretty carefully thought through offensive Again, they're pushing all the logical buttons, not anything creative, but they got five or six countries to join them, basically five eyes plus Japan in condemning it. And they say they hope to get more. They charged the Chinese, I thought this was interesting, with aligning with criminal hackers to steal intellectual property, which sounds like China 10 years ago. I, it, it was kind of a surprise that they have gone back to this model, right, Maury? Yeah, you're right, Stuart. I mean, you're talking about both the indictment and the attribution. We've debated a lot whether indictments work. And this one probably won't be much more effective than other previous indictments. The Chinese aren't venturing too far to field either. I think the attribution of the Hafnium group now saying it definitely is Chinese associated is interesting. And the actions that are being taken here suggests to me that the federal government really is getting serious on cybersecurity, being fairly targeted with concrete actions rather than making noises. Along the lines of Biden's May 12th executive order, there's more of substance here. So looks like things are happening. Yeah, this is, I would say this feels a lot like the ransomware project, which we did an interview with probably a month ago. And they had a long, and I accused them of writing a very boring report because it was like, all of the conventional wisdom, all of the things that you could do, all very procedural. But it's what government does when it gets serious about something is it starts up a whole bunch of interagency consultations and plans. And none of those plans are impressive one at a time. But if pursued with enthusiasm, they're going to have more of an impact than perhaps I'm willing to uh, grant. And it looks as though the Biden administration is following that playbook. Take all of the available plain vanilla responses and goose them up a little and try them all. Yeah, and I think maybe the most significant is that they're getting serious on federal standards for cybersecurity cyber in the things that the government is purchasing, which doesn't necessarily affect the private sector, but the government's a pretty important purchaser and it's a leader, and that could have some real effects. Well, I, and I'll, I'll, let me turn to Pete to talk a little bit about that, because remarkably, we've gotten used to the idea in the Trump administration that the deadlines that were set by the National Security Council and in executive orders for getting stuff done were 
advisory, but the administration in an executive order set probably 50 deadlines for responding to the vulnerability of purchased IT, federal government purchased IT. And we're starting to see those reports come in more or less on time. And I thought NTIA had a pretty interesting one on software bill of materials. Pete, generally, are they actually living up to these deadlines? Yeah. I mean, it was last week they met their deadline, NTIA, under the executive order to publish these minimum elements for software bill of materials. I mean, it's still, they've been working on this for a couple of years now, still at a very basic stage. It's the report that they issued last week. It's kind of, it's a floor. They encourage multi-stakeholder process here to kind of continue to develop on this floor. But what you have here is still very, very basic, very initial progress. Three basic elements that one of these S-bombs has to contain. So NTIA say you have to, there's certain data you have to disclose. You have to tell us, you know, about for each of the components of your software, who's the supplier, what's their name, what version is this? You have to tell us who you are, who's issuing the S-bomb, when did you issue it? They're supposed to be updated. You have to make your S-bomb uh, machine readable, so it can be subject to automated screening. That's kind of like you can do sanction screening of your customers, and you can do vulnerability screening of your suppliers based on the based on the S bomb. So that's the ideal that they're working towards. And there has to be certain procedures about how you manage your S bomb disclosures. You know how frequently you put them out there. In addition to disclosing what you do know about your software supply chain, what you don't know. If you make a mistake, how do you disclose that? What do you do with it? So it starts to kind of outline what this is going to look like, but there's still a lot of questions about how companies are going to do this in practice. Yeah, I'm sure there are, but this is the first step toward putting it into a standardized format that actually could be automated so that people could quickly check to see when they discover there's a vulnerability in Linux 4.1, do they have, still have bits of Linux 4.1 in their uh, software bill of materials someplace? So it's it's the kind of thing, it's blocking and tackling. It's not exactly uh, touchdown passes, but worth doing. Okay, so let's go back to China because the Chinese government is doing a remarkable amount to ensure decoupling between the U.S. and China is a success. And I, it's as though they and the Biden and, and Trump administrations all had one goal, which is to say selling in each other's markets is going to turn out to be really hard. Uh, Maury, the Chinese government, in the course of basically slapping Didi, which is the Uber of China, upside the head, slapped a whole bunch of other people upside the head as well, both on cybersecurity and on doing IPOs. In the yeah, I mean, what they did, and I think Didi was hit, was surprised by this, was they announced after the IPO had happened that they were going to have a review of the handling of data by DD, including storage abroad and so forth, a little bit like what the EU always does. And the share price is now down 20% from the IPO price. And they've elevated the responsibility for this to, uh, they've elevated the Cyberspace Administration of China, which was responsible for improper content online, to a role in this cybersecurity review. This is an organization that's under fairly direct control of Xi Jinping. Uh, so He created very it more or less, didn't he? Yeah. So it's very clear central control of 
Chinese foreign IPOs, which were, it's like CFIUS is an important control on acquisitions in the U.S. This is a security related hurdle to get over foreign IPOs. And it's significant. Yeah, I I get the feeling they just don't want any foreign IPOs. They were sending signals to Didi that it was a bad idea to, to do this. And Didi, it looks to me as though he sort of said, yeah, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And then just did the IPO, maybe under pressure from investors. And that left Xi pretty angry. And they started doing a lot of things, including saying that the apps couldn't be loaded on uh, phones in China as a way of just saying to the, you, you hummed that one by us, you got the IPO, good luck to you, because we're going to see if we can't uh, make you regret everything you did and cost you a whole lot of money in the process, including all your investments. Yeah. And I think recall that this is not the first big IPO that they've intervened in, but this really the second, the Ant Financial IPO that was supposed to happen, not in the US, but in Hong Kong, was that was blocked. That didn't happen. Jack Ma thought he could get away with criticizing the government on some things, and they've made very clear that they're not. And so Alibaba and Tencent are also under other sort of competition pressure from the government to re- to open up their networks a little bit. So there's a lot of different kinds of pressure on these big tech companies in China. Yeah. And the opening up the networks to each other, I mean, they're famously divided. That strikes me as the kind of thing that's popular with consumers and that the government isn't necessarily doing to punish Tencent and Alibaba, but they've got new authority and and before the government might have wondered whether if they ordered that they could make it stick but now it's clear they're going to they're going to keep these guys down and the tech sector which has been the favored sector for 15 years and a lot of money's been made is going to be brought to heel along with everybody else uh, it reminds me a little of the time when they uh, fired all the CEOs of all the telecom carriers and then moved them over to a different company just to show that they could do it. Uh, and and this has an air of that. It's just to remind everybody who's really in charge. I think in the long run, it'll be bad for the tech sector in China because they'll be afraid to try. I think that's just right. As you say, the policy drivers for the IPO rules and this network opening are completely different. But yeah, it's all about bringing the tech sector to heel. Well, not that it wasn't happening here too, uh, but let's talk briefly. Actually, I guess we can't do this briefly. Uh, there is so much government entrepreneurialism in the access to criminal communications field. The one that is uh, that we've already heard about is ANAM, the FBI's work with the Australian uh, Federal Police to create a special uh, phone, a secure phone, just for criminals. I, I just finished a, a piece looking at some of the interesting legal issues that that raises, and it's there's a lot of them. I think the people who think that this is going to raise questions about encryption policy might be right, because one of the things that it looks as though this did as a technical matter is in order to make sure that every message could be decrypted, a master key was sent with the message so that whoever got the message also had a way to, to, to work back to get the key. And I think that was almost certainly designed into the um, product 
as a result of the Australian Federal Police getting an order under their new law that allows them to get technical assistance and technical capability assistance from the developers of secure products. They're not supposed to. The law says they're not supposed to introduce systemic weakness. I don't know, Nick, do you think um, having a copy of the key going with every encrypted message might be thought to be a systemic weakness? Yes, but fortunately, the Australian police didn't ask for it. The FBI just conveniently provided it. The vice has actually gotten a copy of the phone, and they did a brilliant job of making it truly crimey crime face the phone. This would be something you would never use for legitimate purposes because it had the phone disabled, no apps, hidden app to get to the chat, the pin thing, the pin entry copied the FBI doors where you uh, randomize the location of the pin entry just so that you don't get uh, fingerprints showing what the code is. No, which is clearly had, it gave every indication if you were a user that this was really carefully designed to be used by criminals to engage in criminal communications. Yes. And only criminal communication. And that and the FBI makes says, the... the FBI says that everybody who they have identified as using the phone was a... Yeah, because there's no reason for non-criminals to use it. It was deliberately bad. Well, and, and I think there was both a kind of sexiness element. This is an invitation only, and it's endorsed by the godfather and the criminal masterminds whom you respect. So there was that. And then from the government's point of view, if they had built something that they had a lot of access to that was being used by ordinary people, they'd be taking a lot more flack because uh, they would have introduced, they would basically have been decrypting the communications of everybody on the platform. And if they couldn't say with some confidence that 98% of them were crooks, they were going to get a backlash. So I think this is a case where good marketing and good public policy came together. Yes. And the other thing is you overcharge. So if you're taking a $150 Android and you want to sell it to the MAGA crowd, you sell it for 600 plus. And if you are taking the FBI and selling to the criminal crowd, you take a $500 Google Pixel 4 and you sell it for two grand. So a lot of the marketing actually include the pricing as well as the sales. Yeah. I, I For some reason, I'm, I'm reminded of the movie in which the sultry heroine says to the hapless fall guy uh, uh, protagonist, you're not very bright, are you? I like that in a man. And that's what the FBI likes in their criminals. I, it's, it, there are some really interesting and hard issues here. I don't think this is easily repeatable. Nobody's going to fall for this a third time or a fourth time is my guess. Except uh, that the thing is the criminals keep falling for this. This is like the fourth or fifth secure phone infrastructure business marketed to criminals that got basically used as a honeypot. The only difference is, is this one, the FBI did the coding rather than outsource it to somebody else, take them over, and then voila. Right. All right. Well, so there are like three articles burning, well, 
two burning commercial hackers who operate in the West and one from Facebook in which they burn an Iranian hacking campaign. I, I think that the attack on NSO and on a second Israeli company, Kandiru, is, it's interesting in part for the contrast. NSO is out there. Everybody's heard of them. Candiro, nobody has heard of. And it looks as though they decided that the, the lesson they'd learned from NSO is stay below the radar as long as you can, because when you come up, you're going to have Citizen Lab and uh, Amnesty International on your case. And now they're up. And what do you know? They've got Citizen Lab and Amnesty International on their case. And Microsoft. Now, the interesting thing is here is what has really happened is there's two separate uses for this type of intrusion software. Law enforcement investigations, including terrorism, etc., and espionage targeted at reporters and stuff like that. And basically, you fate share. So if you buy software that is used by, say, Saudi Arabia to spy on Khashoggi's wife just before they murder him, which NSO Group software was doing, you're going to fate share when you get on Bill Marzak's. Now, there's some very interesting things here. The Kandiru stuff is they've been trying to play a lot of shell games. And part of the really nice thing on the Citizen Lab report is the shell games. Yeah. I have to say, and, I was really disappointed that they have apparently moved on from the Candiro name. Because it's one of the, it's that famous tropical fish that swims up your urethra and then stinks. There's no actual evidence of this <laughs> happening, but it is a blood sucking catfish. Yeah, so. and, uh, apparently, I've seen that at least one uh, actual case of that happening. And who cares? It's too good to check. But what a great name for a, uh, a malware company. You're just never going to get rid of it. Yeah. But the other interesting thing is the NSO leak. So this is even more interesting because somehow some fairy gave to Amnesty International the targeting database for NSO Group. So NSO Group does a lot of work on behalf of the clients. And so they basically have a target log of every phone targeted at a given time. And that ended up in Amnesty International. And that and makes it really hard for them to deny that they knew. Except that they covered. have anyway. Yeah. That's the thing, that they are like denying that they had any involvement in the Kish side, yet at the same time claiming they have no insight at all. Yeah, it's and, interesting. They've said that several times. And, and they are lying. You think they're lying. Okay, I, no, I, they I'm are skeptical. clearly lying because they have the existence of the centralized log file across many countries shows that the NSO group knows who the victims are. They know the phones or they know the victims? They know the phone numbers. Right. So they, if they don't know, uh, it's because they don't want to know. Yes. And this is NSO group selling point is that nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we don't care. So if Victor Orban wants to target journalists or not, Hondra Modi wants to target journalists or the Mexicans want to target journalists, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. We're going to deny that we know anything about it, even though 
Amnesty just proved that they have logs, so they just don't want to know. Could be. I know this is complicated. If even if you're trying, if you're trying to be in this business and do it well, it's very hard to do. I mean, uh, yes, it's easy for Amnesty International to say they are all journalists, but we all know that there are people on the streets uh, with Antifa wearing press uh, uh, credentials that uh, are about as much of a journalist, well, more uh, or, or actually less of a journalist than I am. Uh, a, but uh, I'm sure Amnesty International would say, oh, look there, they've got press credentials. Uh, so, and when you pick a country, you're, you're looking at the country's overall reputation. Mexico's a democracy. It's a democracy that has lots of corruption problems and lots of police abuse problems. So what do you do? You say, no, I'm not going to sell there because there's no country that doesn't have police act abuse Or do you say you're going to to audit? That's the thing. That yeah, that, NSO Group has the capability to audit the victimology. And when you see a onesie, twosie, whatever. But when you have these large patterns of abuse, that is the feature that NSO Group is selling, is that we don't care. Because if they did, they would be able to stop the fate sharing. Because if you are really concerned about the criminal investigation side, you don't want to fate share with the people who get on Bill Marzak's radar. Because the citizen left, I... 95% sure we're laughing their leaps off at the Anom business because that is brilliant. So the, the, when Citizen Lab blew the the latest tradecraft from NSO, do you think they blew a lot of good counterterrorism operations? Don't know. The problem, probably not because the thing is they really didn't do any sort of mass reporting. So like when NSO Group previously was using WhatsApp, Citizen Lab and Facebook got together and they only notified the WhatsApp customers who didn't already have a pen register or similar order on them from criminal process. So we don't know how many actual criminal investigations were affected, and probably very few of them were actually blown by this because there's no notification of the victims except for the ones specifically called by Amnesty. And so Amnesty was undoubtedly very careful looking up the phone numbers going, oh, is this somebody XYZ, and then contacting them. So the collateral damage from NSO's group point of view is their exploits may stop working and maybe Apple will finally get off their butt and rewrite all their parsers into type safe, memory safe languages. All right. We wouldn't be the Cyberlaw podcast without at least one suppression of speech uh, story. Uh, this is a good one. The Surgeon General said vaccine misinformation is taking away our freedom to make informed decisions about our health. And uh, we're going to solve that problem, the, the taking away of our freedom with censorship. We're going to say that the Facebook is not to stamp out misinformation. The president said they're killing people. Facebook is killing people with vaccine misinformation. 
question. I It's like saying the internet is killing people. Right? And it's not like the government has been so good about giving us good information. Uh, the CDC has mixed its messages, turned around and given us a different message time and again. It shows you, I mean, it's a political institution. Uh, it has a view and then it wants that view publicized until it doesn't. And it makes a lot of decisions about uh, what it's going to call misinformation that are pretty political. So, so I, in this case, this vac anti-vaccination stuff is truly nuts. It and is it's nuts. A I, I agree with you. It's all of about 12 that are making money off of it through Facebook. And Facebook does have some level of moral obligation. Well, maybe. On the other it's only killing off about. Republicans. So, hey, no, um, I, go Tucker. Actually, you're doing a great job. I think you're wrong about that, Nick. Uh, in fact, if you think back to, say, August of last year, both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden running for office said about the vaccine, well, I wouldn't trust it. It's been rushed and it's the Trump administration. No, uh, you they can't wouldn't trust, that. trust it until you had outside expertise. Yeah. And but, but they were that clearly was also August when things were very unclear. Okay, I would but, like to point out at this point, no, the it's, knowledge it's, on those vaccines is so good. They're so safe. And if you chart vaccination rate versus presidential election, you find that it is a Republican problem, thanks so to I, I Tucker Carlson and Fox News. I think you're wrong about that, Nick. I could be wrong, but I'm seeing polls that suggest that vaccine hesitancy is spread across the political spectrum very broadly. and that Correlate uh, it, vaccine uptake and presidential vote on the county level and there is such a strong correlation. They have yes, done. There they have are done real polls. nutcases on the left, the fruit and nut granola types. Yeah, but it, oh, it is it a is, Tucker Carlson-driven right-wing phenomenon. I, which I, I is guess why I, we want to spread the conspiracy theory <laughs> I, that I, Tucker I Carlson is secretly a Democrat trying to kill off the Republicans. So, I, I, first, I don't think a lot of people who aren't vaccinated are going to die from uh, the Delta variant, but maybe I'm wrong. Already had what they think was COVID, and they might be right. And if they've already had COVID, they probably don't need the vaccine. Uh, and and maybe... uh, The vaccine's immune response generation is a lot better than your normal one. Because among other things, the vaccine is using a stabilized spike protein. So it's actually presenting a much cleaner target for your body to learn. So um, that's it, it, why the vaccine is so effective against Delta, by the way. Yeah. So I, it is, I, look, I got my, my vaccine as fast as I could and I recommend it to everybody. But I, you have to be a little uneasy about the idea that the president of the United States and the White House is coordinating and suggesting to Facebook and social media people who ought to be deplatformed because they think they're saying something that's wrong or that they're going to Verizon uh, and saying, can't you read all of these text messages people are sending and censor them because they are also conveying the view that vaccine is risky? I, I This strikes me as dramatically out of proportion to the risk and you know, deeply offensive to the what we usually expect from our government. We expect the government to talk to us. We don't expect the government to shut down talk that disagrees with it. I never took you for pro-virus, Stuart. 
I'm not pro-virus, unless you want to, unless you take the Marxist view that I am objectively pro-virus. Uh, but I am, I, the worst virus is letting government get away with mau-mauing the social media uh, platforms to take down things that the government just disagrees with and to treat the government's views as authoritative on almost anything. The government deserves dissent and dissent will serve us better than manufacturing a consensus. Okay, Maury, Germany seems to remarkably, I, I hesitate to say this, to agree with me, they actually had a German court impose a fine on uh, YouTube for having sh shut down speech uh, that was basically a lockdown protest that had been filmed. I'm kind of surprised that the Germans took this view and that they nailed YouTube for a pretty hefty uh, fine for ignoring the judgment. Yeah, well, free speech doesn't have quite the weight in Germany that it does in the United States, but it's still a principle. And the court decision was actually in April, I think maybe even April 20, 2020, ordering Google to uh, YouTube, Google to reinstate this video. And th this, what just happened this past week is that they hit them, hit Google, hit YouTube with a thousand euro, hundred thousand euro fine for failing to quickly comply with the court order. And that's pretty significant. So maybe we'll see some alignment across the, as we become less free speech and the Germans become more, maybe we'll meet well, Angela Merkel already has said, I don't know, tossing Trump off Twitter seems a little extreme to me. So yeah, it's hard to believe that the uh, the Europeans are the bastion and the uh, the shining light of freedom on a hill. But there you go. On that note, I, I think we we don't have a lot of time for today, but Facebook has just released a fascinating report about its oversight board. And I see this as something to talk about a lot in the future, because I think we're seeing a real transition to a new kind of legal regime on this thing, a, a private legal regime. There's some fascinating stuff in there. Yeah, I, I, we, should, we should do a, a segment on that and interview some people. I, I don't know how seriously to take it. It's basically a bunch of people who are giving advice to Facebook. Uh, and Facebook wants them to be authoritative but can't make them authoritative so there's a lot of kind of less attractive corporate politics involved in that and then the people who were chosen are the classic uh, the un cocktail party crowd and so i i kind of know that when push comes to shove they aren't going to defend any speech that i think is something that absolutely has to be defended because it's unpopular and right. So I'm not enthusiastic about the, the oversight board, but I'm also not enthusiastic about Facebook's use of the, the board and reaction to the board. But we probably should give it its due and have a discussion because they've written now, more than anything, that's a good insight into what's actually happening inside Facebook and how they're making decisions. We're learning a lot about that. I don't know that Facebook's thrilled about it, but we are learning. They they had a policy and they forgot they had it, so they didn't apply it for a year. They had another set of procedures for appealing certain decisions that nobody knew about and was basically a, the top echelon of management just said, oh yeah, we can't do that. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. It's what you'd expect as as Facebook tries to figure out what it's going to do with its unbelievably bad public image. I, I kind of do almost feel sorry for them. They are being 
so trashed. Everything they do is trashed, mostly from the left and then from the right. There's nobody who's satisfied with them, and everybody seems to be enjoying beating them. Well, I agree. It's a big discussion, and I, I look forward to it. Okay. All right. Colorado has a new privacy bill. Uh, we are slowly um, seeing one state after another adopt things that look uh, sort of like GDPR, sort of like California's uh, Privacy Act. There's a Virginia law, and then the most recent one is Colorado. Pete, quickly, what's new in it? Yeah, so I think we're, we're starting to see a trend here of some of the, you know, Virginia and Colorado, somewhat more moderate states where to get legislation passed, you have to listen to Republicans and other kind of moderate views. So they're walking back, I think, a bit of the standard that California has set. Notably here, both Virginia and Colorado, there's no private right of action for the potential data privacy violations. So it's a huge, it's a very controversial part of the California law, obviously being pushed by plaintiff's attorneys and Democrats who support that. So in Virginia and Colorado, we've got AG only enforcement, government enforcement, no private right of action, which makes it much easier to get these things passed. And I think sets a more reasonable standard, at least as you know, U.S. states are really just um, learning how to enforce these types of laws. There's also a longer cure period when a violation is identified. So if you get contacted by the AG um, in Colorado and Virginia, you have a cure period. Colorado is giving a longer 60 days instead of 30 days, I think, in Virginia to cure the violation. So there's kind of the government's trying to work with the private sector, I would say, to, you know, to make it a more manageable regime. But you've also got some more stringent protections for consumers here, even relative to California. So there's a requirement for express consent, opt-in for collections, you know, more sensitive personal information, you know, race, religion, things like that. Whereas in California, it's a opt-out structure. So looking to enhance consumer protections in the most sensitive and important areas, but also make the regime more work for the private All sector. Right. Okay. Well, it, it's useful to see how this is going to slowly shake out. And I think it does mean that maybe California's law will be the inspiration for a lot of state laws, but won't be borrowed in uh, word for word. Three or four quick stories. Vietnam has begun really exercising its muscles to influence its citizens through online propaganda. And Reuters had a story about Vietnam's Facebook influencer army. Mori, anything, this is just a Chinese 50 cent army moving, operating south of the, uh, the country, or is it something more elaborate? Well, I think it's Vietnam's version of the Chinese 50 cent army. I mean, it's very similar from what we see from China and Russia and other countries. I think it's not huge news, but it's really interesting. It's they talk, The Reuters article talked about Force 47, which is an, an arm, I believe, of the Vietnamese army, and that they're asking them in their spare time to be posting on social media. Lots of countries are getting into this game. Maybe think whether Western countries should do so more, but... We seem to do it more from a soft power perspective and don't need it as much. Or we could uh, send the president out to say, uh, if you don't produce uh, 500 tweets uh, supporting my policy, you're going to be killing people. All right. Cuba. I 
there is back in the news because there's lots of demonstrations. The Cuban people are really critical of the uh, communist regime there, uh, and we're seeing a lot of activity on the ground. That has led to shutdowns in internet communications by the Cuban government, and there's a group that says they think they've gotten uh, over a million Cubans' internet access by using a tool to circumvent the censorship. Nick, I wasn't sure how well this tool worked. Uh, It's different from Tor was designed to do the same thing and has been around a lot longer. Both of them have gotten funding from the U.S. government. Is the new tool better than... Far better for this purpose. So Siphon is actually... It's been around for a while. It's just a bit under the radar in the U.S. because you have no need for it. And so Tor actually tries to do three things. Counter-censorship, which it does very poorly, client anonymity, and server anonymity. And Siphon only tries to do censorship resistance. And as a consequence, they tend to do a much better job of it because it's more usable. With If you use Tor to evade censorship, you're treated as a Tor user, which means you're treated as the scum of the earth because too many scum of the earth use. And so I actually believe these numbers that Siphon has had a million distinct users in Cuba as a result because they're a very good program for just countering censorship. And yes, it is largely paid for by the State Department, just like Torres, because that's something that the State Department believes in paying for. We're not going to wake up in two years and discover it's the favorite tool of child porn distributors? No, because it doesn't work for that. This is why separating out censorship evasion from client anonymity is very important, that you don't need anonymity to do censorship resistance. And as long as for, you're willing to take the consequences of what you say. Well, more importantly, for most usages of censorship resistance, ditching anonymity improves the result because you don't have the a-hole problem that you do with... Okay. Maury, I, I did not read the, the, the report the Libe Committee commissioned on how to solve the uh, the data uh, embargo across the Atlantic that uh, is growing up as a result of the Schrems II decision. It, because I thought, well, the Libe Committee paid for it and it's just going to be lefty European cant about how evil the U.S. system is and how they have to build the wall higher. I, But you read it, thank God. How Am I right to uh, to be cynical about it? Well, it's the usual approach we would expect from the Libe Committee of being not thinking our legislation is good enough for Europeans' data. Uh, but it, it's a little more even-handed than I would have expected. They have four recommendations, and the first one is enhanced self-certification by U.S. companies. So they basically said you could have uh, the U.S. legislation's not going to be good enough in the foreseeable future, so you could have a better version of the privacy shield that might satisfy. The other recommendations I think you'd be a little more skeptical of, which is like a reform of U.S. surveillance legislation, treaty with the five eyes to say we won't spy on each other's citizens. And then interestingly, recommending better class actions in Europe to allow citizens to uh, sue people over privacy violations. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So the idea of if having introduced the idea of a treaty between the U.S. or the five eyes and Europe 
it's a really dangerous idea for them and one that I think is actually worth thinking on our side because if you enter into a treaty, you can override the Schrems II decision, which is just a construction, a, a judicial construction of what the treaty means that uh, is being treated as the constitution of the European Union. But you can modify a treaty by a later treaty and we could just write treaty terms that said the European Court of Justice should butt out. We now have decided that these are the standards that we're going to apply. So that's the one little piece of good news in that. I agree that uh, the rest of it is them being flexible about the terms of surrender by the U.S. intelligence. They aren't going to get a formal surrender, but they're going to, they're going to, kill US, the U.S. 702 program because everybody who has data that is of value for uh, 702 collection for anti-terrorism and other purposes is going to have to move it to Europe and keep it there and swear that they've never let the United States see it. That's That, that means that the U.S. just, it's like a boiled frog, uh, only it's a pretty quick boil. And that's what I think is going to happen in allowing Facebook to, to say, here's my enhanced certification that I've moved everything that the U.S. government is interested in to Europe it would serve the purposes of the crazy left in Europe, be bad for European security and certainly for U.S. security. But I don't think Libe cares about that much. No, I was on unintended consequences. I I totally agree. On the treaty, your perspective is really interesting. I mean, Libe has asked for a treaty that serves just their needs. But of course, if we did a treaty, we'd do one that's broader. And that's an interesting... Okay, last uh, update. SolarWinds is back again because apparently the SEC is asking a whole bunch of companies, by the way, did you get uh, breached by SolarWinds? And uh, where's your your public disclosure of that fact? So everybody's been thinking really 20 years that the SEC is going to force a lot more breach disclosure by treating it as a, a material event. And we haven't seen much of that in SEC settlements or investigations, but now there's at least rumors that the SEC has a pretty substantial effort underway to hold people's feet to the fire for not having disclosed that solar winds affected them. So that's a... Pete, do we actually have confirmation that this probe is underway or is it still just... Yeah, the SEC has FAQs. So, so if you're one of the companies that got this letter, they're not very helpful, not surprisingly so. But yeah, it's a mess. I mean, it's an ugly situation for these companies to be in. They're looking at not, were you impacted? If so, were your disclosures appropriate? If not, what does that say about your internal controls? Are you doing cyber risk assessments as you should be and adhering to materiality standards the, in your disclosures? The, the, the answers to those questions are never going to be comfortable. Uh, it, it's And yet people had gotten used to the idea that, ah, it's not really material. I don't know how material it is. And so there was a lot of that. And uh, it's not clear to me that that discussion, those kind of half-baked decisions not to disclose are going to survive scrutiny by a skeptical. Yeah. And Possibly most concerning, they're looking at the timeliness of the disclosures relative to the company's knowledge, and they're looking for insider trading leads. Okay, that wraps up the news roundup. Uh, And now let's turn to our interview with Josh Steinman, who was the senior director for cyber and really the highest ranking person doing cyber in on the National Security Council during 
pretty much the entire or close to the entire Trump administration. And so he's got a, a unique perspective on cyber in the last five years and uh, now is trying to bring that perspective to bear doing a startup. And he's having a very candid kind of public exploration of what he thinks the next big thing in uh, cybersecurity is going to be. So we're going to talk about all of that. Uh, Josh, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here. I'm a longtime fan of both you and the podcast. Oh, that's great. That's terrific. So I, let's start with how you ended up in the Trump administration doing cyber, because you didn't start start out there, you were really a Silicon Valley boy. Yeah, it's sort of, sort of both. So uh, I sort of grew up a digital native, got my first computer when I was maybe 10. And uh, in high school was building websites for a few small businesses locally back in Detroit. And then uh, in college, I worked the help desk all, all through my time at uh, University of Chicago to sort of make ends meet. And, uh, and then I got recruited into the Navy and I did a bunch of really interesting expeditionary intelligence type of work, some of which was digitally focused, some of which was not. And then around 2013, I got recruited to work for the chief of naval operations. That's the senior officer in the Navy. And he had a very small group of 10 junior officers and enlisted. And we were sort of a think, do, red cell, think tank kind of an organization and uh, it was there that I really started to get into technology policy. And I did a few interesting things that I can't talk about here. But the one thing that I did that I can't talk about here is I wrote one of the early white papers that turned into the Defense Innovation Unit. And that was back in 2014. Okay. Gone back and forth. Yeah. So before we get to DIUX, as it was then, I mm -hmm. want to uh, stop and say you're really a Detroit boy? Yep. Okay. Well, no, listen, I, I, I went to Edsel Fort High, so oh, wow. I, I, I don't think I, I actually do sound a little Midwestern, but where, where, what part of Detroit? Birmingham. Oh, good Lord. I went to Cranbrook briefly, but they threw me out. So <laughs> They did not throw me out. You went to Cranbrook? No kidding. Yeah. Huh. yeah. We will reminisce about that place. What a beautiful campus it, yeah. it, it was. Yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite uh, places in the world. Yeah. Uh, and I probably deserve to be kicked out. I was a, uh, it, it seems uh, to have worked it, out for you, though. <laughs> exactly. I survived. Uh, okay. And now uh, you're at, you, you get an offer to go, or to, you propose setting up something that will make the military and Silicon Valley a little closer together where possible. And Michael Brown actually ends up starting that, uh, if I remember right. Did he recruit you? So, no, actually, Mike's a great guy, and I consider him a friend and uh, just a, just an extraordinary public servant who I know is going to do great things. No, so back in 2014, I wrote this paper, and I was able to get it in front of a few members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I believe, although I, I didn't have visibility into it, other people were thinking about the same thing. My perspective was that I had just come back from serving as a military officer at an embassy in the Middle East, and then going out to Silicon Valley and working on some projects with some uh, technology company. I was approached by some technology executives saying that they were having a problem of people from the Department of Defense coming out to Silicon Valley and taking meetings where they didn't have any asks. And in the Valley, that's not really how you do business. And so I wrote this paper saying, hey, we need an embassy style function that can serve as that interlocutor to explain the Department of Defense to Silicon Valley and vice versa. So that was back in 2014. 
They stood up DIUX at the time in 2015. I was getting off of active duty, having been on active duty for a little over seven years. And then I became a reservist and was a plank holder at, at the Defense Innovation Unit. And actually, so deep history here, there were two previous people that were in charge of DIU. Again, great patriots, but Mike oh, okay. succeeded a guy named Raj Shah, who now is- oh, sure. Uh, Another tech, yeah. So Raj was before Mike, and then before that, there was another leadership team that sort of stood it up in its uh, pre-establishment. Okay, so yeah, he's he was going to uh, get a pretty substantial job in the administration at DOD, and just withdrew because he's waiting for a Inspector General report coming out of his work at DIU, and he says he's confident it'll turn out all right, but it's not going to get done in the next three weeks for in time for hearings, so uh, it's a shame we're really missing uh, a talented guy to go into the administration. Yeah, Mike's done some great work at DIU, where that organization has really flourished under his leadership. And his ability to really translate in between those two worlds. And I just think that it's really important for our Department of Defense, for the military to be able to integrate cutting edge technologies. And whether it's DIU or some of these other really interesting offices within the Pentagon, I just think that work is really important for national security. And Mike's been at the forefront of that for several years now. So while you're out there in 2016, you end up uh, working for the Trump campaign, which must have been there were all four people in California uh, doing that. So you, they must have known. Who so I actually was at a Silicon Valley cybersecurity startup running operations there. We had just gotten out of Y Combinator. We were doing sort of endpoint protection, document protection, encryption sort of work. Right. And I was not associated with the campaign, although I did think that he was going to win and knew some folks that were associated and, and yeah, just told them that I'd be happy to help in any capacity. And after we won, I got a phone call from an old boss and said, come back to Washington. And so I took a leave of absence from the startup and joined the transition team. That was my first official connection with, with that world. First and big mistake because the transition team got completely uh, defenestrated, didn't it? So it, I joined after the sort of last significant oh, okay. shakeup. Yeah, so early December. Flew out, crashed on some friends' couches in D.C. and helped just sort of do the paper flow of people who the incoming NSC team was evaluating to join the staff. And so this, on this was one Flynn. of the last at, at, at that point, Flynn was making was shaping that. And he was the one of the few people in the transition who actually knew how NSC ought to work and that, what the national security issues were. So did you spend a lot of time working with him? Yeah. And I had worked for him. And so okay. we had we had a decent I, I, he's, he's been a mentor for many years when uh -huh. I was on active duty and then after. And so he asked me to come back. And there's people in your life who've um, helped guide you and you say yes when yep. they ask you to come back and do national service. And so, uh, yeah, I was helping General Flynn, KT McFarland and General Kellogg just literally take this uh, cascade of resumes that were getting sent in from everywhere and just organizing that into an interview process. And on one of the last days, they had a gap in, the, in their lineup and that gap was cyber. And uh, there were some candidates that they were considering and, uh, and General Flynn approached me and he was like, look, of all the people that we have, there is someone who's not on the list who we think is better qualified and we'd like you to join the team. And again, 
can't say no to national service. I didn't ever consider that I would come back in that type of a role, but having served for a few years on active duty and then having seen some of the challenges, I had a general idea of big problems that needed to be solved. I figured I might be able to solve them. It's a great job, but a lot of work, but a, but a great job. So obviously Flynn didn't last very long. He got, and he was given the bums rush as part of the conspiracy theory about uh, Russian influence. And there was some Russian influence, but what the FBI did to Flynn was just a shame. I, I, it's hard to justify what they did. Uh, and the leaks of a FISA tap also uh, unprecedented and shockingly political. So he obviously was treated badly. And my impression is that when McMaster came in, he moved a lot of Flynn's folks out, uh, and but he didn't move you out. Uh, did you have a relationship with him? Not previously, although I did know people that knew him. <laughs> I'm not sure if they ever communicated anything on my behalf or not. But look, in those type of dynamic situations, my mindset is always you come in every day, you try and do the job, you try and do what's right, and you over-communicate with your chain of command. And so that's what I did. Frankly, I'm not sure why they didn't they didn't ask for my resignation because almost to a person that happened um, with people that, that General Flynn had brought in. But look, you just show up every day, you put your nose to the grindstone, and then you uh, leave via the Navy steps every night, take a look at the White House and just think it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, got good advice from somebody who said, you should write your resignation letter the day you get the job. Because you'll never be more enthusiastic about it. You'll never be more optimistic about what you can do and um, enthusiastic about the people who appointed you. And you should write it then as opposed to later when you're disillusioned and grumpy and you have enemies, you want to settle scores. You shouldn't do any of that in your resignation letter. It should all be about why you joined in the first place. So I, that's the same philosophy that says, always leave by the Navy steps. Uh, look at the White House, breathe it in, say, God, I'm lucky to be here, and, and maybe I'll be here tomorrow. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right. So I, it, you had cyber. There were two lines of authority, and there was somebody who was in charge of cyber. At least Bossert and Rob Joyce got most of the attention for doing cyber issues. And I know there was some, it, it wouldn't be the White House if there weren't overlapping roles and a little bit of elbow throwing. How did you see the difference between what you were doing and what Joyce and Bossett were doing? Yeah, so two great public servants that you just mentioned, Rob, and and uh, there's some interesting organizational dynamics that I think drove some of the things that happened. And they really did come down to the organizational chart. And so if really inside baseball here, but starting in the Bush administration with the creation of this Homeland Security Council, there was a separation of types of roles on that National Security Council function that exists within the White House. And so I think that a, a lot of what happened and got sort of aired in public was the fact that there were some unclear roles and responsibilities. And so, and nothing wrong with it, because frankly, I found that both the people that you mentioned, and frankly, many of the other folks that were involved in cyber, all had noble intent and, and were doing great work. And so I'll just try and dispassionately observe that what was going on is you had conflicts of, of vision in terms of how that coordination function should be handled. 
And so the the sort of unitary camp, the Flynn, and then I think really Bolton and and O'Brien camp that asserted and and had a National Security Council structure that was very flat. And it was like you had senior directors directly reporting to the deputy national security advisor, directly reporting to the national security advisor. And really for the folks that have operated in that environment, those senior directors are really just answering to the national security advisor where the deputy is sort of playing a traffic cop role, also holding deputies committee meetings. Previous administrations have had a different But there was a Homeland Security advisor and a whole bunch of stuff that ran up. And for a while, the Homeland Security advisor was equal, a peer of the National Security advisor. Uh, But that was historical. And it didn't sit well with the National Security uh, Council alumni. So it's not surprising that some of them would say, why don't we just tuck the Homeland Security Advisor and all that cyber stuff and everything else that has to do with defense of the country in under the structure we already have. And that's what you're thinking of as the unitary types. Yeah, exactly. And so those decisions were above my head. And so I think much of this question of who's doing what, how are they doing it, et cetera, what's, who's in charge, all sort of come out of how people commenting on that think about resolving that issue over who owns the problem. It's obviously a little challenging because you can have cyber issues that are domestic. You can have cyber issues that are foreign, but then many of them sort of cross those streams. And so again, like my my attitude, I was the senior director for cyber, was that I'm going to come in and run policy processes and literally just throw them up. And however that those people above me wanted to handle it, that was fine, whether that was for a time a Homeland Security Advisor, Tom, who did a great job, or a National Security Advisor. And so what had happened is that the General Flynn had eliminated a a middle management layer that existed across the entire National Security Council where there were coordinators. And so every office at NSC on day one of the Trump administration no longer had Cyber had any kind of coordinator. There were Middle East coordinators, Asia coordinators, and those people were sitting in between the senior directors and the deputy national security advisor and the national security advisor. And so Flynn brought the JSOC model and just flattened all those organizations. And then again, there were some organizational growing pains over other folks who came in. And in terms of my own perspective, I was just trying to sort of do that staff level work of holding, you know, they're called sub-PCCs, policy coordination committee meetings. PCCs, and then handing things up to the deputy level. And so you just got to let those things get worked out inside the West Wing. It wasn't really my job. Right. And look, when you said it had happened over your head, that looked like the two choices were it happens over your head or it happens through your head, because practically everybody who was involved in those fights ended up leaving at one point or another. And Bolton decided, we're going to flatten all of this, and I don't need... Well, I don't need to replace Rob Joyce's position. I don't need to replace Tom Bossert's position, at least as I saw it. And that left you with a little bit more room to run. I mean, so at the time that Rob resigned, he was actually the acting deputy national or homeland security advisor. Okay. So he had sort of stepped away from the cyber. From the cyber. Hot. Yeah. Although he was obviously with the home, the portfolio, there were lots of cyber issues that were under his. Plus he knew it down to that, the ground. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Rob's a for, yeah, consummate professional who's been doing amazing work for the National Security Agency for decades. So yeah, I'm, look, it's tough. And obviously a lot of these fights happen in public or they happen semi-publicly, you know, 
again, right. then I, they have I, their own ideas. Yeah. It's, it, let's talk a little bit about what you guys did on cyber, the Trump administration, and especially the Trump NSC. I can think of a couple of things that, that issues that really got moved forward. 5G, the question, what we can do to deter attacks, cyber attacks. Those are both things that were really, they were gleams in the eye of the Obama administration, but they mean might never have become more than that. And my impression is NSC did a, a fair amount of work to turn them into policies that had a whole set of do-outs and activities and some accomplishments. Am I in the right area or are there other things that you would point me to as accomplishments? You're right on the money. And frankly, I think there's a whole bunch of things that, that we did that really moved the ball forward. 5G telecommunications is one of them. And again, the NSC, our, our job is to sort of coordinate whole of government policy and sort of set the metronome, right? Set the direction when directed by the president, and then just sort of make sure that folks are working together. And so, yeah, we, I, people, my chain of command, the national security advisor came to me and said, we need you to run the 5G process. And I did that for, I mean, I think it was like three, three years. No one was really coordinating it before. And so I worked with folks on Larry Kudlow's National Economic Council uh, very closely. And yeah, we really did a lot. There's a national strategy to secure 5G, which we put out after many years of work, numerous executive orders on supply chain, and then some other things that had been in the works for a long time, such as formalizing a process that had previously been informal known as Team Telecom which has to do with controlling. I'm a, I'm a team telecom lawyer, so I'm deeply familiar with it. And I, yes, I, and FCC was complaining that these cases sat around forever and they yep. needed some, some guidance. And it probably did make sense to turn it into something a little more formal. I, I, I ran team telecom for DHS when I was in the Bush administration. So yep. deeply familiar with it. I, it was yeah. a perfectly unexceptionable approach that you guys did and probably welcome. Yeah. And so, yeah, on, on, on Huawei, obviously the president decided that he wanted to take a robust stand. And uh, look, there's plenty of open source information that talks about vulnerabilities that exist within the code bases of those types of companies. And frankly, the, the Chinese national security law and cyber law mandate compliance with the intelligence services of the Chinese Communist Party in secret. And so I think the president was right to come out and take a very robust position. And obviously, we then executed a policy process and implemented that policy after it was decided to bring the full weight of the United States government to bear in support of telecommunications companies worldwide that abide by the rule of law and many of these principles that we've used to create one of the most open and, and prosperous societies in human history. So I, that's, a, that, that's an initiative that is rare in that the Biden administration picked it up almost seamlessly, even adopting some executive orders you might have had a hand in on supply chain. I, a, is there another area where you think the Biden administration has wisely kind of, and quietly, because you wouldn't expect them to be noisy about it, picked up on things that the Trump administration really got moving? Yeah. So I think that the way in which I think about a lot of things at this level, 
strategic government initiatives, things like that. It's almost systems thinking. You can look to folks like Nassim Taleb and the folks at the Northeast Complex Systems Institute, folks like Yanir Baryam and, and real cutting edge systems thinkers like that. And so my mindset in taking the job was very much about how do we build systems that can move quickly, make corrections when necessary, et cetera. There's a lot of philosophical overlap with the thinking of a personal hero of mine, John Boyd, Colonel John. Mm -hmm. And so that was the mentality that I tried to bring to the job. And you can see that in some of the executive orders. But uh, this concept is uh, a, a German, there's a German Prussian military word phrase, Augstaktik, mission type orders, which is that you create structures whereby leadership sets a goal. And the folks beneath leadership essentially have pretty wide-ranging authority and responsibility to then execute against that, and then they get held responsible. And so whether it was how we do cyber operations or how we do these telecom policy processes, the mindset that I actively brought to how do we shape these types of things is informed by those two sort of philosophical schools. And, so and what think, is, let me ask, what it is that... It, Pick something where you think the Biden administration has made a big mistake in not following through on some work that was done, because a lot gets lost in the transition, and Oof. here even more. Well, Stuart, I'm, I'm going to have to disappoint you. And and in, in most cases, my predecessors on whichever side of the displayed uh, a generous amount of discretion and in, in many cases did not criticize me. And, and I'm just going to sort of have to plead the fifth on that just because okay. they're in the middle of it. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> no, that's and fine. I wish them the best. I, that's fine. Well, let me yeah. push you to, to be candid about something slightly different. You saw a lot of agencies up close doing their part of the cyber mission. I'm going to ask you, to give them a grade. How good are they at doing that? So let's start with NSA. We have a superior uh, intelligence apparatus, and that's all I will say there. And uh, Not going to give them a grade? You can give them an A if you want to. <laughs> oh, but then I'm going to ask you yeah. about CISA at DHS. Yeah. I'd like to take your question and sort of go in an interesting direction, which is that the, the grades that I would give, and I, I won't, but the grades that I, I will give is how their recruitment and human human capital policies are working. And so NSA has great programs to bring in really talented mathematicians, computer scientists, programmers, et cetera. I think that when it comes to organizations like CISA, there, there's a long way to go. And it's going to be the growth of those types of programs. And we tried to initiate a bunch of this stuff in Executive Order 13800, and then subsequent executive orders on... Um, on human capital for cyber personnel. And we can put some of that in the show notes. I can send you the other executive orders. But that's where I think we have a lot of work to do and where CISA has a lot of work to do. And frankly, the whole defense apparatus, the intelligence apparatus, where I have friends or, or young kids that I'm mentoring, maybe they're in college, and Google, Apple, Facebook, or some hot Series B, Series C startup can offer these kids a, a job. And they could be starting within the month, within six right. weeks, sometimes. And we don't yet have that ability in many of the cyber agencies. Oh, or no, it's, it's months and months of months. hanging around. Yeah, no, it's yeah. very grim. I, I, I tell people if they're going to if they're interested in that, get a summer job with an agency that requires a clearance and start mm -hmm. getting your clearance now for next summer, because yep. uh, once you've got it. 
life is much easier. Okay, so last effort to put you on the spot. This is easier, I think. What agency do you think was most underrated in public esteem on cyber? It's a political question. I, I don't want anyone to read into it just because there are lots of tribes in this. But I will say I was always very impressed with the folks at the Department of Energy. And there are debates over like sector-specific yeah. agencies and leadership and who's in charge. I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying when it comes to having outstanding, world-class technical professionals able to go do interesting things in a defensive way, as per right. their charter, DOE was always very that's impressive. That's because they're really part of the defense establishment. They're really a, an <laughs> arm of DOD in many ways. And they bring that culture and that sense of the importance of their mission and the need to understand the technology. All of that is part of DOE. People don't see it. They think it's all about uh, solar energy. Yeah. Uh, I'll buy that. Okay, same question for some person who has held a job in the Trump administration that, that you think was really underrated in terms of their contribution to cyber? I wouldn't want to give anyone a kiss of death who's currently serving. Okay, what I will say fair. is there are many people that are currently serving that I was incredibly impressed with. And for their own sakes, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. What I will also say, though, is that all the things that I'm talking about here, all the accomplishments would not have gotten done were it not for the directors that worked for me on the National Security Council. Those folks are in many cases, most cases, career professionals. Most of them are still in, some of them are still on the NSC staff. And they were just incredibly talented, incredibly driven. And everything that I get to talk to you here about was done because one of them, more of them, all of them were coming in early, staying. And I saw my job as empowering them to solve the problems that we all agreed needed to be solved. And so th those are the folks that impressed me the most, frankly. Okay, so that um, I, I, I hear your time in the military coming through on that one. You, you have to recognize that uh, you get nothing done without the people that work for you. All right, now let me, let's, let's turn to what you're doing now, because you are engaged in, as far as I can tell, a, a search for the next big thing in cybersecurity, and you're doing it in public, you're evaluating stuff, you're explaining why you love it, and then why you're not going to do it. I, and you've been through two or three uh, startup ideas. You're obviously in touch with a lot of VCs who are interested in funding you if you can find the next big thing. So where are you in that search today? Yeah, so I left obviously in January, and and ever since I've just been going out and and talking to folks that are dealing with what I think is the biggest problem area. And we did a lot of work on the NSC staff around this, and that's industrial control system cybersecurity. And so for members of your audience that may need a little bit of clarification about what that is, if you think about the number of computers that exist in the world, most people are going to think about laptops. Maybe they'll think about cell phones desktops. But the number of computers that exist in the world is probably orders of magnitude bigger than that, because whether it's a gas turbine engine or an automotive production floor or an energy grid, there are embedded systems that are computers. They have processors. They're running an operating system. Sometimes it's Windows. Sometimes it's Linux. Sometimes it's something else. And they're all over the world. And they're especially all over uh, the Western world. And they are especially all over the United States. Every critical infrastructure has them. Almost every modern company has them. And it's, a, it's an attack surface. It's a vulnerability surface that I think 
has not yet has not yet had an infrastructure or commercial infrastructure dedicated to the degree in which it should be to protecting that infrastructure. There are some great companies out there that are specializing in one area or another, but if you think about the possible risks to the way the American people's way of life, I just think that the risk is enormous. And just like I came in to the White House and the NSC staff to solve explicit set of problems, I wrote them on my whiteboard on day one and checked the last one off on the last day. Industrial control system cybersecurity is my number one priority. And so I've been talking to folks for six months about that. And those are the business plans that you're seeing, the models that I'm exploring. And you know, there's a lot of ways to sort of tackle that problem. And I'm going model by model. So you had, uh, the last one I saw, you had said, maybe we could do an MSP, a security provider for ICS systems. I, and I hate that idea because I don't think that anybody with a industrial control system that it has any complexity at all will be willing to let you in deep enough to actually do the kind of security that people do on Windows networks today, and especially not after all of the MSP compromises that we've seen in the last year or so. So I'm with you in rejecting that one. What's your next... Hold on, let me look. I've got this. I've got a big long list. The next one. So the, the next one that I'll be discussing, which will come out in the next few days, was this concept of TurboTax for industrial control systems, cybersecurity. And I'll be reviewing this on my Substack, steinman.substack.com. Wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't plug my... And so, you're you're going to get to uh, tell us your Twitter handle too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at the end. So so yeah, this the next idea that we evaluated was this idea of sort of a TurboTax-like interface that would walk through people responsible for industrial control system cybersecurity, walk them through the sort of like 101 level, like what you can do today to buy down risk to those networks with a focus very much on that front end, on a TurboTax-like experience that would be very simple. And so the spoiler alert, we I did essentially pass on that idea, but I think it brings out a few different themes that I continue to explore in the Substack. And you actually alluded to them as well. Very shows a very good nuanced understanding of the problem, which is that one, IT has sort of merged with security over the past few years. And one of the reasons why that has happened is because the person responsible is the person uh, who has the authority to deal with those things. So IT and security roll up to a CIO or sometimes a CISO, if it, however they want to organize it. And that person has usually a buying authority and they're responsible for the personnel. Industrial control systems, very interesting because in almost all cases, those systems, which are also sometimes referred to as OT or operational technology, those systems usually roll up to a COO. And that person has these sort of uh, Six Sigma, Lean Six Sigma obligations of uptime. And that, and that architecture that that person's responsible for is usually the alpha generating infrastructure for that company. So if it's a Ford Motor or Pfizer or whomever, like the machines are making the things the company sells. And it's, inc it's incredibly challenging when you talk to these folks because essentially, as soon as they realize that you're talking about doing anything on that network, they're like, no thank you and no thank you. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's exactly the problem. Uh, they know it works. They can know how to yep. squeeze a little more efficiency out of it. If they turned it off and tried to turn it back on, they are not sure it would work. And oh, so this okay. is the problem with the MSSP model, which is that you're asking them, hey, we've got a bunch of people. You'll never meet them. You don't know them. 
and you're going to give them access to your operational technology networks. And that COO is going to be like, go take a hike. So here's a, why isn't there a business in constructing a completely realistic artificial intelligence in the cloud model of the industrial control system uh, so sure, that you can actually in like literally in like literally a month. I okay. can't, I'm not going to comment on that. All right. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Proving well. your reputation immediately. Like you could have had a real conversation about this instead. Uh, All right. Uh, yes. Well, we'll have one in the future. Give me yeah, a call. Great. All right. I, Josh, I've carried you past what I promised I would uh, do. It's been a uh, delight to talk to you. What is your Twitter, Twitter handle? It is R. Dangerous Men, A-R-E, Dangerous Men. I, I began my career, my military career in the Middle East. I actually, very strange, as a high school student, I um, spent a summer researching and writing about Al-Qaeda and writing a paper about U.S. Al-Qaeda relations. And I turned in the paper and then three months later, 9-11 happened. And I was pretty sure at the time, I'm still pretty sure that I had read 98, 99% of everything that had been written about Al-Qaeda and bin Laden as of September 10th, 2000. I got a B plus on the paper, but the professor since wrote some college recommendations of mine. And so I'd been recruited out of college to join this very interesting corner of the Navy. And an early hero of mine had been the uh, the author of, of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, T.E. Lawrence, who was a, a military oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. He basically so, uh, broke Arabia away from the Ottoman Empire yeah. with a lot, so of, with a lot of help from the uh, Saudis. Yeah, exactly. And so he's got a famous quote about thinking about what reality you want to exist and then bringing it uh, into reality. And that, that's where my Twitter handle comes from. Okay. All right. Josh Steinman, thanks very much. We will be looking forward to hearing about what startup you finally do and whether it has anything to do with our conversation just 10 minutes ago. Thanks very much. Thanks, Stuart. All right. Many thanks to Josh uh, and also to Nick Pete and Maury for joining us. For the last regular episode of the Cyberlaw Podcast, uh, although tune in next week and you'll hear a lot about cryptocurrency, send us comments at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us a rating and a review wherever you have downloaded your podcast from. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. Uh, I, I do want to read a couple of reviews or note a couple of reviews that we did get. One of them, I think, is you probably heard me complain about the guy who gave us three stars because he thought that I was going soft on Apple. And apparently he heard me too because he deleted that review and put in another one that says, great podcast, five stars. So I, 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 I this will only encourage me to beg more frequently for five-star reviews. I'm sorry uh, for those of you who have to listen to this. Uh, and then here's one, uh, also worth uh, reading because there's a lesson in it for other podcasters. It says, until recently, this was a consistent four-star podcast with great content and solid production values. Stuart and his provocative pro uh, posse do a great job with high-quality legal analysis and generating more than a little food for thought. Over, ever overcomes his infamous hatred of and possibly cognitive bias against the EU data protection law. I don't know where else I will ever again find such a recurring fountain of scathing and mostly unfair reviews of everything related to GDPR. That's probably true, but I don't think we're going to run out of that anytime soon. And now the promotion. I hereby award the coveted fifth star to this podcast due to a change.
change in production implemented in late 2020 or early 2021 without wishing to cast aspersions on any of the on-air talent, including me, I suspect, someone on the production staff, either a tireless human editor or an especially clever AI is now taking a massively interventionist approach to post-production editing and clipping innumerable incidences incidences of that which must be deleted. Uh, So here you go, invisible back office, second editor person, you won that fifth star. Uh, And he is absolutely right. It is, however, an enormously clever AI, by and large, although we are getting a, a fair amount of uh, help from Doug Pickett, who does our sound engineers engineering, we switched over to a product called Descript, which if you are a podcaster, you need to investigate right now. It turns all of audio into editable text so that you can just run a line through uh, a word or two and it disappears from the audio version. You can hit one button and it takes out all the ahs and the uhs and the repeated words. So it's made most of the podcast five minutes shorter and a lot easier to listen to. So if you are interested in, oh, and best of all, I I haven't tried this. Apparently it would allow me to type in words that I thought I should have said, and it will imitate my voice and insert them without any obvious reduction in the quality of the voice. So this is also being used in a variety of movies and documentaries, but it is apparently pretty effective. So uh, we owe that fifth star to Descript, and I recommend it highly to everybody who is in the podcast business. And that is the end of the episode. Thank you.